Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Miriam Knight Show, where we explore the many faces of consciousness in action. As the publisher of New Consciousness Review, I get to see the latest books and films having the greatest impact on the global awakening and interview their authors here. I feel particularly privileged to have as my guest today, Neil Donald Walsh, a modern-day spiritual messenger whose work has touched the lives of millions. He has written 29 books on contemporary spirituality in the 20 years since he reported having an experience in which he felt the presence of the divine. He began writing questions to God on a yellow legal pad and received answers in a process that he describes as exactly like taking dictation. What emerged from that encounter was the nine-part Conversations with God series, which has been published in absolutely every major language of the world. Neil believes that everyone is having conversations with God all the time, and that the question is not, to whom does God talk? The question is, who listens? His own decision to listen and to articulate God's message changed his whole life, and he believes the world would change overnight if only a fraction of its people embraced God's most important message of all, you've got me all wrong. This is also the tagline to his latest book, God's Message to the World, You've Got Me All Wrong. Neil Donald Walsh, I am so pleased to welcome you to the show. Well, Mary, you're, you're very uh, generous, and I thank you very much for those very kind words. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, you've effectively been challenging the interpretations of all the world's organized religions regarding the nature and the will of God since the very first Conversations with God book came out. Brave man. Now, this book, God's Message to the World, seems to me somehow more comprehensive. It certainly pulls no punches. Why this book now? Well, I think that uh, my effort here was to really reduce the messages or the information, if I could uh, put it that way, in the original Conversations with God series, which, as you know, covered nine books uh, spanning something like 3,000-plus pages, and to try to reduce that in a, a form that was digestible and easily absorbable by the largest number of people. In addition, I was hoping that I might reach a new audience uh, with this book, that is, because of its different slant on the original messages, that it might pick up a reader or two who hadn't previously heard uh, or of the Conversations with God books, or perhaps have heard of them but never really had a chance to read them. So I put on the back cover of this book uh, a true and false, true or false test that allowed people to take a look at 17 statements and uh, answer true or false in their understanding. And if they uh, had an interesting experience with that little quiz in the back of the book, the true or false uh, quiz, they might say, you know what, I'm going to take a look at this book and see if it has anything for me. So I think my intention, Miriam, was to reframe the discussion in such a way that people would find it either new or a stimulating restatement of the original material, uh, and at the very least, begin to consider far more vigorously the messages that have been brought to us uh, in all of the Conversations with God books. Well, I have to say that having read umpteen books in the general area of spirituality, I still found a lot of food for thought in your book. 
So um, I think you will definitely achieve that end. Now, all organized religions were based on original revelation to their respective founders. Why do you think religious hierarchies were so insistent that revelation or prophecy has stopped cold and looked down their noses at anyone who um, claims to be communicating the word of God? Well, I think uh, that the reason is obvious. It, it would then, uh, at, at least in the minds of some people, threaten uh, the authority, <clears throat> excuse me, or the veracity of, of the original messages that have been received and sent to us through the uh, written documentation with regard to those messages placed before the world by, by uh, many, many uh, people uh, who are, who are um, holding sacred uh, what has been passed on to them. I want to make it real clear that I, I don't hold the thought, nor do I make the claim, that I'm a person who's communicating directly with God, and I'm uh, in the sense of being the only one. Uh, the conversations with God messages, as you've pointed out in your introduction, make it very clear. God is talking to all uh, humanity, everybody, all the time. The question is, who's listening? So, But I, I, I certainly believe that, that uh, sadly, um, there's not much room for evolution or further revelation uh, with regard to the original messages received by the founders uh, and the original scribes associated with the world's great religions. Obviously, they didn't want to hear about uh, somebody coming along in 2015 claiming to have uh, received additional information or more expanded information or a different idea or a different slant on things or perhaps a deeper understanding that might have been possible to pass along a thousand or two thousand or five thousand years ago. So the answer to your question as I observe it is that obviously it would be very threatening uh, to people for somebody to come along now and say, well, you know, here are some new thoughts, some new ideas, some new um, explanations uh, for things. At least give it a, give it a look, give it a, a look-see and see if there's anything there of value to you. That would be very threatening to the status quo. And you know, in, not just in religion, but in uh, most of the areas of human interaction, in politics, uh, in economics, uh, in the, the uh, uh, talking about and caring for our environment, in our social systems, and not just in our spiritual systems, we are very reluctant, very, very reluctant uh, to take on any new ideas. You know, you know, um, not all that many years ago, we had a doctor, I, I used to know his name, I've forgotten it temporarily now, but who, who proposed that we should actually sterilize instruments and wash our hands. <laughs> he said, you know, it would be really a good idea to wash your hands before surgery. He was drummed out of the medical profession for making such a, such a, a, a suggestion. Because at the time that he made the suggestion, nobody in the, in the medical profession was doing that. And, but but he, he was suggesting that perhaps if we did, we'd have a lower mortality rate, especially a lower infant mortality rate, because he was able to demonstrate that doctors were coming from operating room procedures in one room and then going to the next room across the hall and delivering babies and bringing the germs and, you know, along with them from the first operation. And the babies were unable to resist. They didn't have uh, systems yet in place. Uh, to do that in their bodies, and they were dying like crazy. So he, he, he demonstrated statistically that by simply washing your hands between operations and using some disinfectants on the instruments and so forth, we could save a lot of lives. And you know what? He was drummed out of the medical profession because it was seen as a, a direct contradiction of and a direct criticism 
of the status quo. So, you know, we're not, we don't like people who come along and tell us that maybe there's something we don't fully understand here, the understanding of which would change everything. No, we, we don't. And the parable that comes to mind is the sage pointing at the moon. And instead of his disciples looking at the moon, they stop by looking at his finger. And th- this is the cult of personality that we seem to be more comfortable with rather than trying to understand the overarching ideas that those personalities are trying to convey, the, the real wisdom behind them. But what another, thing, another thing, if I might please, at play here as well, we would also be making wrong our own personal ancestors, that is, our own mothers and fathers, and our grandfathers, and our grandparents, and, and our ancestors before them, who have been passing on the majority of these ideas for many years as part of our familial, as part of our family story. So it's not just about uh, resisting the changes in the doctrines of the larger world's religious organizations. It's about changing what our own parents told us and what our grandparents told us. We are loath to make anybody in our our family wrong, in, in our ancestral line lineage wrong. So rather than do that, we just continue. You know, and, and by the way, incidentally, this was predicted actually in Scripture. The sins of the father, it said, will be visited upon the sons, even unto the seventh generation. Interesting interpretation. And it brings to mind the many books that I see coming across my desk now um, of channeled information. I mean, it's like mushrooms after a rain. Now, I'm wondering if you sense that there is something different or special about this time that seems to have opened the floodgates to such a growing stream of inspired insights about the nature of God. Well, thank you. I do. Uh, first of all, I want to just disavow in my own particular individual case the use of the word channeled. I would never uh, suggest to anybody uh, that I'm channeling, if you please, God. That's simply not what's happening any more than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John channeled God or channeled Jesus. They simply took down, through a process of inspired writing, what they understood and what they found themselves understanding about many of these issues. I just want to step away from the word channeling. However, having said that, yes, I think there's no question in, in, in the world, not a single question, that we are now moving through what I want to call, in my own verbiage, the overhaul of humanity. In fact, that's exactly what I pointed to in a book called The Storm Before the Calm, in which I described two years ago in a book exactly what's happening right now on the earth, whether it's the ISIS uh, situation uh, or whether it, whatever it might be uh, all over the planet, whether it's what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri or anywhere else, uh, that we're noticing now a real rattling, a real shaking of the tree, if you will, uh, and uh, and we're, we're kind of wondering what's going on. The thing that happened in Paris a few days ago, just totally shocking the world and saying, okay, what is it now? What's happening here? Is this the clash of civilizations that Samuel P. Huntington, the professor, talked about 15 or 18 years ago? Is this what's going on now? Or are we reaching the end of times in a sense? Uh, and there's no way out of this. So in the book, The Storm Before the Calm, I discussed all of this from a spiritual point of view, as well as offering hands-on specific suggestions, ways out of the place that we find ourselves in. But yes, I think you're perfectly right. It's observable uh, uh, by the most casual observer that there's been an energy shift on the planet as we begin to grow in consciousness and grow in awareness uh, and that experience is being had by a growing number of people, those who are 
frightened and afraid and attached to the old ways will begin to take a stand and in some cases regrettably they'll do it violently because again not wanting to see any changes occurring in their in their most fundamental belief systems and understandings. Mm. You speak in your book of humanity as still being in its infancy, and yet we, we've matured more rapidly, I would say, in the last century or two than in all recorded history. What do you think? Were, what do you think were the catalysts? And, and the, the catalysts for the change, I, I, I think, is the, the shift of energy itself, the expansion of our technologies the ability to speak to each other globally at the press of a button or the flick of a mouse, uh, and the other technological achievements as well of, of humanity that have put us, put us more in touch with each other so that we are now operating more as, how do I put this, almost like one brain in a sense. That is, the stories that we are being told now by humanity itself have to, be, have to make sense to a larger number of people at the same time. In the old days, it was very possible. And it happened, in fact, that stories were, were told to humanity to, in clumps and in groups. That is, you lived over here, you heard one story. You lived over there, you heard another story. And you lived over there, you heard a third story. But and these were called our culture, our various cultural stories. But these days, there's one cultural story. It's humanity's cultural story because of the Internet and the ability of people, even in far-flung places, to begin to hear about and get in touch with the stories that we are being told. Uh, by our larger institutions, not just religion, but our political institutions, as I mentioned, our economic institutions, the corporations, and so forth. And you know what? What's happening is they're no no longer able to get away with it because there are too many people now in the pipeline. We're talking about billions of people on Facebook alone. Forget about the rest of the Internet. Mm -hmm. And when, when we hear what is now being fed to us, a large, huge number of people can look at that and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I simply don't agree. It doesn't make sense. And unless we can come up now with a new cultural story that begins to make sense to the largest number of us, we're not going to make any progress. The evolutionary process on this planet is going to stop in its tracks. That's what's happening right now. And that's what's causing panic among people who have a particular story to tell, because they're now having to convince not just a few thousand people or a few hundred thousand people, or for that matter, even a few million people, but they've got to convince 7.3 billion people that what they're saying, that their story is how it really is. And if they fail to convince the largest number of those billions of people, they realize that they're in trouble. So they have to create violent responses and violent reactions. But the catalyst to all of this great change and this growth is the fact that we have developed this extraordinary device called the Internet. Let me just put a postscript on that. What the Internet is doing now in this time and age is what Gutenberg's printing press did when it first came out. It was a huge, created a huge, almost unfathomable shift in awareness and consciousness because suddenly people in, across vast areas could be exposed to and opened to the, the knowledge of those before the, the printing press. Very few people read, and those who had access to the wisdom of the ages up to that point were a very select group of monks and, and other people who and, and royalty and so forth. But the, the common person, the common man, never saw, never was exposed to those ideas. There were people who tried to stop the printing press for the very reason that they realized once the masses of people got a hold of those ideas, everything would have to change. That kind of censorship, by the way, goes on to this very day for the exact same reason. <laughs> That's why in certain countries of the world, China and among others among them, are trying to now, you know, uh, uh, censor the internet because the f nothing endangers established notions of things 
faster than the free flow of ideas. As, as has been noted before, all the armies in the world can't stop an idea whose time has come. So the answer to your question, in my view, is that the catalyst has been this, the Gutenberg miracle of the 21st century, which is, of course, the vast spreading of the Internet, now even among people who even 10 years ago did not have access to it. Well, if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Neil Donald Walsh about his book, God's Message to the World. Neil, you uh, talk about the prior assumption that we have about God that we need to reassess. What is it? The prior assumption is that everything we've been told so far is correct. And, and we are loath to question the prior assumptions. The one thing that we will not do in the area of faith or religion, we do it everywhere else. You know, in science, for instance, as soon as science discovers something that they think is valuable and good, they begin to question it. And they question the prior assumption upon which that discovery was based. The same thing is true in medicine. We put it to the test immediately. The same thing is true in technology. We put it to the test immediately. But in the area of religion and our theological beliefs, we do not want to put those to the test. Not only do we not put them to the test, we actually call them, those who do put it to the test, we call them blasphemers and apostates. Mm. And in certain countries, we actually put them on trial. And in some few countries, we actually kill them. How dare you question How dare you seek to know more about these things we are telling you? That's why I've written this book, God's Message to the World. You've got me all wrong, because we do have God all wrong, in my view. You know, I could be inaccurate about this, but at least can we talk about it? Like, God bless her, Joan Rivers used to say, can we talk? (laughs) On the back back of this book, let me just read you three or four of these statements that I, I, I pose to the people listening to us right now. True or false? God is to be feared. True or false? God exists and is a superhuman male being. True or false? God demands obedience. True or false? God sees us as imperfect and we may not return to God in an imperfect state. True or false? God is vengeful and God's love can turn to wrath. True or false? God has a plan for us. God's on our side. And the list goes on. I've listed actually 17 key statements that we've been told for thousands of years by our parents and their parents before them about God. And it's my suggestion that these statements may very well be false. And if it's true that these statements are false, to use an interesting turn of phrase, then we find ourselves in a very interesting situation because not just our religions and our spiritual understandings, but our legal system, the laws of many countries, including the United States, are based in no small part on the understandings that we have adopted and embraced from our religious beliefs. Even today, we are told that certain legal restrictions should be imposed upon people because it's what God says is true, gay marriage being a striking example. Mm. You point out very cogently the big dissonance between the notions of a loving God and having to fear God. How do you think that's played out in society? I think you just kind of hinted at it. Well, our our fear of God, of course, is what generates everything from beheading people and then broadcasting it on the Internet to, you know, uh, the uh, court system, the, the clerks of the court in the state of Florida Uh, simply refusing to uh, issue marriage licenses of any kind so that they don't have to issue marriage licenses to people of the same gender. So so whether it's a large, horrific event 
like I just described with the beheadings, or a somewhat smaller event, but no less restrictive, such as the uh, refusal of the clerk of the court to issue any kind of marriage license. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, th- th- these. This is what happens when we are afraid of God. We 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 are saying to ourselves and to each other, you know what? We need to fear God. If we do not do what God wants. God will send us all to hell. There are even people who are saying now that the, that the problems we're facing on the earth is God's punishment for our misbehaviors. It's God's punishment for how we have already um, disobeyed God and, and, and that, we, that we are in a Sodom and Gomorrah situation. We're, we're lucky if God doesn't turn us all into pillars of salt. And all of this arises out of the notion that God is to be feared. That in turn arises out of the notion that God can become angry and upset, upset enough to do things to us that would make us be afraid of God. Damnation, for, as an example. And, and so we, we sort of invented the divine feminine to get some respite from that constant fear. Well, the divine feminine, of course, preceded the divine masculine by several thousand years. It was, in fact, our first understanding of God on this planet. That the earliest human beings thought of God, thought of the of divine, the, the divine, if you please, as a feminine, essentially a feminine essence. Which is why, in the earliest civilizational groups of humanity, uh, the leaders of the of the groups were women, not men. Men were the, the laborers. They moved the bricks around and, and they did the heavy lifting, if you please. Mm-hmm. But the people in charge uh, in in the um, paternalistic society were were all women. And then uh, at some point in, in human history, men said enough. If we have that much uh, muscle power to move all the, the blocks of concrete and so forth, we, we, we have enough muscle power to take over uh, the system itself. And they, right. they, 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 they determined that all of the scriptures would, would be written from a male point of view, and they developed the idea that God is masculine. Neil, can you go into this notion of of the, the sort of politics of religion. Do you think the, um, that the original prophets of each religion had a core message of compassion that was then distorted by the interpretation of, uh, of, of these hierarchies for their political ends? Or, well... Or what? Or what? Well, or... Uh, are we misinterpreting it? I mean, is, is that what God really wanted? And you're saying, no, that's not what God really wanted. Yeah, I think with respect that the answer is obvious and it's it, it leading the witness. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you were in court, you'd be, you'd be objection, Your Honor, leading the witness. Yes, of course, <laughs> everything you've said is exactly correct. And, and I can only answer it to say ditto with what, everything you've just said. It's patently obvious uh, that what you've just said is completely true. Well, I mean, the casual observer would would, would see that. It, it, it doesn't take a, us looking much beneath the surface of things to notice that your observations are, in fact, a literal description of what is going on and what is and what has been going on. But it's such a loss because it really divorces us from God. And I think you say in your book that the notion of duality or separation from God is really at the root of what ails humanity. Yeah, it's the biggest, it's the biggest uh, uh, challenge and the biggest problem. That is, uh, in my assessment, profoundly correct. 
it's it's if there was an original sin, so to speak, there's no such thing as sin, but to use a term that's become popular through the years theologically, if there was an original sin, or at least if I could put it my way, an original misunderstanding, it's the idea that we are somehow separate from anything, from anything, from the earth, from life itself more broadly, from each other, from individuals, and from what we call God, or Allah, or Yahweh, or Brahman, or Jehovah, or whatever word it pleases us. Uh, to re- use to refer to that ineffable essence that we call the divine. That there is only one thing in all the universe. All things are one thing. There's only one thing, and all things are part of the one thing there is. But as long as we insist on imagining that God is over there someplace, and we're down over here, and never the twain shall meet except on Judgment Day, as long as we hold that idea, we will treat each other, then, as separate from us. That single idea of separation is what I call separation theology. A notion that the whole divinity thing is way, way out there someplace, up in heaven or in the clouds or somewhere else in the universe, and that we are down here trying to get back to that place. You know, it wouldn't be so bad if that was just a belief system. You know, I mean, gosh, we all get to believe what we want to believe, so there's nothing wrong with holding a belief. But that separation theology, regrettably, has produced a separation cosmology. That is, cosmological ways of looking at things that suggest that everything is separate from everything else, that we live in a universe of separate items, separate entities, separate masses of energy, separate things trying to coexist with each other rather than being integral to and a part of each other. And even that idea wouldn't be so bad if it stopped, started and ended there. But the problem with a separation cosmology that is held by millions and millions of people is that it inevitably produces a separation psychology. That is, a psychological holding of each individual as being separate from every other individual and therefore needing to look out for oneself and one's loved ones first. And then whatever else is left over, perhaps something for the others. And the problem with the separation psychology is that it inevitably produces a separation sociology. That is, whole societies that imagine that they are somehow separate from each other. Blacks are separate from whites, males are separate from females, Catholics are separate from Jews, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so we have created this whole schematic of separation at a societal level. And even that could be overcome, except, regrettably, that a separation sociology inevitably produces a separation pathology. That is, pathological behaviors of self-destruction, easily observable with one flick of the internet. We're destroying ourselves like guppies who eat their young. Hmm. Powerfully put. Now, I loved your imagined description of the birth of religion amongst cavemen. You, you kind of drew from that experience, this kind of primal need to control what we fear. That, that is totally understandable. Um, and I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on the role religions played in that scenario and, you know, how could we use them today for a more positive purpose? Well, yeah, first of all, I thank you for asking that last question, because I think religion has a great positive purpose. I want to make it real clear here that I'm not a person off your bashing religion. I'm not a religion basher. I think that religion brings us, I think that 90% of what religion places before humanity is wonderful, valuable, and good. 
And by the way, people agree, or those religions wouldn't have lasted for thousands of years. So clearly they have something of value, and they bring something of great value to human beings themselves. There's no question about that. But it's that last 10%, as someone says, you know, the devil's in the details. It's all about the fine print. That's, I think, where we get ourselves into trouble. <clears throat> what we have to do then to, to make things better, to improve the impact that religions have on human beings, not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but to, in fact to make improvements in our religious understandings and our religious practices and our religious beliefs, is to create a new cultural story, is to be open to the possibility that there's something we may not, and I say may not, I mean, I could even be wrong about that, but can we talk about it? Is it possible? even possible that there's something we do not fully understand here about God and about life, the understanding of which would change everything. The challenge that I see before humanity is we're not even willing to talk about it. We kill people who even bring up the suggestion. That's where our problem lies. Well, I think many people would say that if you didn't have religion, how could you um, manage evil in the world? How do you know what is good and what is evil? And yet, you have a rather unusual opinion and suggest that at some level, all actions stem from love. I think that could do with some explanation. Well, first of all, uh, the measuring system, the measuring, the yardstick to determine what's evil and what's not evil is uh, to change the rules of the game, to put a new yardstick down. It's not what what is moral or immoral, because morality changes. You know, as Hemingway said, it's a movable feast. Morality is a movable feast. So you know, every, it changes from time to time and place to place. For instance, as an example, is prostitution moral or is it immoral? Well, it depends on whether you're living in Wisconsin or in uh, Amsterdam. Because if you're in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, guess what? It's regulated by the government. It's a government-regulated industry. You get licensed, and you pay taxes, and it's a totally legitimate business in the Netherlands, which is why, by the way, sexual crime in the Netherlands is about 10% of what it is in the United States, because people will inevitably do what they're told they can't do. That's, that's, that's pretty obvious psychology. So, uh, or for that matter, to use a, you know, so that's about geography. But what about time and place? You know, in, in, when I was a youngster in the early 40s, it was immoral to live with people uh, who were not you, to whom you were not married. That was in, in the 1940s. In the year 2015, it's done all the time. In fact, it's often advised. Actually, par- pastors actually say, "You know what? Well, you're 65 and your boyfriend is 73. Just spend a few months and just go, nobody's going to tell you. You just go, go ahead and live with each other and see how it works. And before you start signing papers and getting married and, and splitting the proceeds, you know, splitting mm-hmm. the, the, the the estates and so forth. So guess what? But guess what? Right and wrong are not a function of time and place. It's not a function of geography or the calendar. To your question about love, please forgive me for interrupting. Uh, I, I know you wanted to. That was the original question. And I mm-hmm. kind of veered off just a little bit. Uh, to answer your question, the conversations with God have made it clear to me that, that the, the new yardstick is not what's right and wrong morally, but what works and what does not work, given what it is you're trying to do. To use another simple example, is driving 116 miles an hour right or wrong? Well, it depends what you're trying to do, of course. 
trying to get the, you know, the patient to the hospital, and you've got a red light on the top of your car, it's totally okay to do that. If you're trying to win the Indianapolis 500 Speedway race, it's, it's, you're driving actually too slow to do that. You've got to drive 175 miles an hour to do that. But if you're trying to get to the grocery store in a crowded urban area safely, it would probably not be appropriate to do that. So it's not about what's right and wrong. It's about works and what does not work, given what it is you're trying to do. Now, with regard to your question about love, yes, there's a, a new understanding about that that's been given to me in conversations with God, which is very complex and very simple at the same time. I was told that every act is an act of love. That is, every act is an act of love. And that's why God understands perfectly well why we did a certain thing, whether we call it good or bad, and that's why God doesn't need to forgive us. God simply understands that we are like children who don't understand what we're doing or how to accomplish what we're trying to do. But every act is an act of love. Thievery is an act of love. If the thief didn't love what he was trying to get a hold of and felt he has no other way to get it except to be dishonest, he will steal. Violence is an act of love in the sense that the person who is violent is merely trying to produce an outcome that generates a, an experience that he loves or that stops the experience from doing something he doesn't love. That is, if we love something badly enough, we will do anything in order to get it or to stop it from being taken away from us. But everything is firmly based in humanity's uh, fundamental instinct, which is, which is to love something. So if we find what we love being threatened, we'll do whatever we think we need to do in order to stop it from being threatened. If you find what we love to be out of reach, we will do everything we can do to get it within reach and to, and to possess it. This is the nature of human nature. When we understand that, then what we have to do is simply change how human beings see themselves as expressing their love. We need to change the model of the world that they are holding. Right now, some people think that the best way to express their love of the teachings of certain religious leaders is to behead people who don't agree with them and to and put pictures of the beheading on the Internet. And, and that's how they are demonstrating their love of their own particular theological doctrine. And if you ask them, they would say they're not really doing it out of hatred, but they are trying to protect that which they love. That's what the two people who killed those people in France a few days ago did. As they ran away, they shouted, you know, Allah is great. So they, they, they said they were avenging the Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> you see, but if they didn't love the Prophet Muhammad, they would nothing to, to avenge. It's very, very clear that if we love nothing, we hate nothing. If we love nothing, we don't do anything violent or, or terrible because there's no reason to. So every act is an act of love, but it's an immature act. It's a childish act. It's a horrific act. It's not to be justified, but simply understood because of our youth as a species. Let me share something really quickly with you. You mentioned you touched upon this earlier. If the Earth's history were placed over a single year's calendar, just for purposes of, of scale, then each day of the Earth's life would represent about 12 million years of actual history. On that scale, the first form of life, a simple bacterium, would arise sometime in February. More complex life forms would come much later. The first fishes around November 20th. Dinosaurs arrive around December 10th and disappear on Christmas Day. The first of our ancestors, recognizable as human, would not show up until the afternoon of December 31st, and yet this, all of human history would occur in the final minute of the year. For purposes of scale, that's how old we are as a species relative to the age of the Earth. Forget about the age of the universe. So we are, in fact, a very, very primitive, elementary, childish species. 
Mm. And we are doing primitive, childish things. God understands that. God's perfectly well aware of that. And so what we need to do to reduce it to a simple sentence is learn how to love. There's another aspect to that, which is to learn the rules of cause and effect and to get into a mentality that looks at the consequences of our actions. How do we instill such a mentality? By allowing people to see the consequences of their actions and to notice that they are not loving. But first, we have to convince people of who they really are. Because people won't care about things like that unless they know who they really are. That is, if I know that you are me and I am you, that we are in fact one, that we are actually a single being manifesting in, very, in, a, in an endless variety of forms. But if I have no ph- philosophical, theological, spiritual, or psychological connection to you, if I insist on believing in separation as a unifying principle, interestingly enough, to use that turn of phrase, but if I insist on seeing separation as the ultimate understanding of humanity, then it won't, it won't bother me what I'm doing to you. Only if I see that my left hand is slapping my right hand Only if I see that one part of me is hurting and damaging another part of me will I be able to gather the kind of mindset that causes me to see what you've just said, the the relationship between cause and effect. But even if we see the relationship between cause and effect, we won't care. It won't matter to us. We'd say, okay, fair enough. I did this, and I created that effect. Fair enough. So we'll see cause and effect, but it won't matter to us as long as the effect is only being felt by the person across the street. That's what allows fabulously rich people around the world to not care about the 2.5 billion people, I said 2.5 billion people on the planet who don't even have a toilet. The 1.7 billion people who have no access to electricity. That's virtually one-third of the population of the planet, one-fourth of the people on the earth. But the 5% of the world's people who hold 95% of the world's wealth and resources say... Tisk tisk. We wish it weren't that way. We're doing the best we can, but there's nothing more we can do. Really? <laughs> You've got me all wrong. God's message to the world. Uh, there is just so much we could talk about, and I think the final point in the in the book that I would like you to cover, Neil, is the notion of freedom to create. Um, what is what feedback mechanism is there to let us as a species use wisely the power that the god-given power that we have i think it's our ability to connect with our own soul the the, the tool the technique is the ability to actually have if i could put it this way our own conversation with god or to connect if you please with the source of higher wisdom and clarity within every human being Once we begin to use that particular tool, that ability that we've all been given on a regular basis, then we find ourselves empowered to move forward and express the essence of divinity itself, which is freedom. That is, is, if there were two words that were ever synonymous, they are the words God and freedom. That, that, That God is the expression of the ultimate expression of freedom. That is, there's nothing that God cannot be, do, or have. And that's also true of every living species, every sentient being in the universe, except we don't know it. And if we don't know it, then of course we can't have it because we can only have what we know ourselves to have. 
so freedom is the bottom line for every living human being, which is why, by the way, most societies, after they exist for a short period of time, yearn for freedom. It is a natural inner yearning. And that is also why those who are in control of many societies and have been for years resist, resist allowing uh, the people in that society to experience or to express freedom because they understand, again, as I mentioned earlier, that as soon as people express their freedom and do so freely, <laughs> then those who are in power, to the degree that they want to control the masses, will find it very difficult to do so. Mm. That's why organizations like, you know, I mean, countries, I should have said, like the United States, where freedom is supposedly the basis uh, of its governing system, uh, emerged emerged from the previously existing common culture on the planet. And now there's a problem in the United States uh, that, that we are seeing our freedoms slowly but surely taken away from us. Uh, and we're not happy about that. We shouldn't be either, by the way. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who thinks they're getting information from spirit but worry that they might just be losing their minds? <laughs> That's an interesting question and a very good one. Uh, I think I would, take, I, I would say measure what you're hearing. Measure what you're receiving, if I could put it that way. You know, write down your thoughts if you want to, record them, or somehow or another keep a record of, of what you're imagining yourself to come to understand and to become aware of, and then measure it against a single statement. Mm-hmm. What would happen if everybody in the world did this? It's really a very simple measuring stick. I turned to my wife a number of years ago, my then wife, and my still good friend, and I asked her the same question. I said, how do I know? How do I know that what I'm putting out there in these books has any value at all, or maybe I'm just like bringing people like lemmings to the sea to their own self-destruction. And my the wonderful sweetheart friend and then wife turned to me and she said, ask a simple question, Neil. What would happen if everybody did it? And boy, you know what? Since I've laid that down as the, as the measuring stick, as the ruler, the yardstick against which I'm looking at what I'm bringing through or what's being given to me, I start to see a very, very powerful device by which to determine whether this is really coming from the highest source of wisdom within me or just some wild imagining uh, that has no real value. Neil, what's the next project you have in front of you? I have created a a movement across the earth called the Evolution Revolution, in which I'm trying to echo the uh, actions taken by Martin Luther, actually, in the years 1517. At that time, he put a single piece of paper on the church house door in Wittenberg, Germany. He called them 95 Theses. And they were statements that said, in effect, you know what, it's not okay. What we're doing right now in our spiritual experience simply isn't all right, and here's why. And many, many people saw that piece of paper on the church house door, agreed with it. They copied it down by hand. It became distributed. And before you knew it, he started a snowball rolling downhill that we've now known took 300 years to get to the bottom of the hill. The snowball was called the Renaissance, which was an outgrowth of the Reformation, in which everything on the earth changed. Right now, on March the 12th, we are inviting people to do the same thing. I've reduced the Conversations with God message to 1,000 words. And I've created a document called 1,000 Words That Would Change the World. And we're inviting thousands of people, several thousand have already signed up, to join us on the 12th of March this year and to, likewise, as Martin Luther did, to tack those words, 1,000 words that would, that would change the world, on the doors of churches, synagogues, houses of worships, temples, uh, and mosques all over the place, as well as under windshield wipers of cars, for that matter, and in every shopping center on the planet, to just spread around the world on this one single day 
to create a global impact on one single day, a piece of, a piece of paper just shows up everywhere. 1,000 words that would change the world. If anyone wants to know more about that or want to participate in it with me, they simply need to go to evolutionrevolution.net. Evolutionrevolution.net. And, Neil, what is your own website? Uh, I'm at cwgconnect.com. And all they have to do is go to cwgconnect.com, which is one of the inside pages on my larger website, which predictably is at neildonaldwalsh.com. And if people don't know how to spell my name, there's a shortcut. They just need to go to ndwhome.com because that gets them to my home page. Cool. Very, very cool. This, uh, tell me again, Evolution Revolution, Yes. EvolutionRevolution.net, and it's a global undertaking. We're inviting 10,000 people to take this piece of paper, go to their local copying place, copy out a hundred, you know, 100, make a hundred copies of it, so that we have a hundred thousand pieces of paper, and get them out on the 12th of March to at least say to people, look, these may not be the right answers, these may not be the only answers, but can we talk? Can we at least explore this as Martin Luther invited people to do in 1517? Is it time for a brand new reformation? I believe that it is. And I think it's obvious that many people around the world are losing patience with humanity and searching for answers themselves. So this is an opportunity to begin a discussion, a global conversation about life itself. Well, Archimedes said, give me a long enough lever and I can lift the world. So let's hope that this... Uh, evolution, revolution will be the lever that we need to shift us from our current rather mad trajectory. I'm hoping that it will at least allow us to take another look at the question that I keep on asking everywhere I go, and at the risk of, of asking be overindulged with my question, it's a simple one. Is it possible that there's something we don't fully understand here about God and about life? the understanding of which would change everything. From Neil's lips, via his pen, uh, possibly all the way back to God. God's message to the world, you've got me all wrong. The book by Neil Donald Walsh that we've been discussing today, available everywhere, I should imagine. And Neil's uh, website is cwgconnect.com. Dot com Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. And the evolutionrevolution.net to join this global initiative on the 15th? The 12th of March. 12th of March, 19, uh, 2015. So I hope you'll join me next week when my guest will be Greg Braden discussing his book, Turning Point. In the meantime, I invite you to visit New Consciousness Review on ncreview.com and subscribe to our exciting multimedia magazine. Tell my good friend Greg that I said hello. I will be delighted. Anyway, I would love to hear from you if you'd like to connect on our uh, website, ncreview.com, or on Facebook. I am Miriam Knight. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again, be happy, be well, and let your light shine. 